when I think about estate planning for snowbirds, I think about it in three tiers. So the first tier is essentially anyone that's going to start snowbirding. What do, what do those people need to do? That's really, I'm renting a place in Florida, I'm staying at someone else's place, but I'm going to spend some time down there. What should I do? And then the second tier I think about is people that actually buy a place in Florida or another one of these snowbird-friendly states. What should those people do? The third one is our smallest group, and that's our high net worth snowbirds. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Jason Muth. I'm one of your hosts. We're here with attorney broker Rory Gill from Next Home Title Town Real Estate in Urban Village Legal in Boston. Happy New Year, Jason. Happy New Year. Yes, this is the first episode that we're recording this year. So, you know, we're proud to welcome uh, a guest who has an awful lot to say about estate planning and I think is a really great resource for people that have found their way to this podcast and don't even know where to start with, you know, estate planning. This is Daniel Bernard uh, and he's with Toomey Latham, which is a law firm in New York, right? Correct. Thanks for having me on the podcast today, guys. Absolutely. So, so Daniel has a website called estate planning for snowbirds.com uh, and he has a great free ebook on there which is quite long actually it's uh you know it's almost 200 pages long estate planning for snowbirds uh that we downloaded in preparation of this episode there it is proud author and we'd love to get into some great quick tips about you know how to start about how to start your estate planning if you haven't done so yet if you're young and listening to this you're probably saying, you know, why am I listening to an episode about estate planning, but maybe your parents are going through this, uh, or maybe you're listening to this saying, you know, hey, I probably should get my button gear and do some estate planning because you've started to gather some assets in your life. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much for being here. We'd love to find out more about your background. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about uh, Toomey Latham and uh, tell us about, you know, how you found your way into estate planning. Uh, so again, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, so I'm I'm a an attorney with my focus is on estate planning, uh, business session planning, uh, everything in in that realm. And then one niche that I focus on is estate planning for snowbirds. So uh, we have a lot of people where I am in New York that start spending some time in in Florida. Jerry Seinfeld had a joke that he said. Uh, you know, my parents didn't want to move to Florida, but they turned 60 and that's the law. So that <laughs> seems to be the way it works uh, in New York. And I know uh, Massachusetts is similar and almost any state where it's freezing cold right now, yeah. people uh, are looking to to head south somewhere. Do you throw that joke into all your uh, your intros when you're meeting? I throw that joke time? into it's in the it's in the book. It's, <laughs> a, it's on every podcast I've done. I, I tell it to I think I've told that joke more than Jerry Seinfeld has. Yeah. I'm waiting for him to call me very upset that I'm, I'm using his material. Well, Jerry Seinfeld, if you're listening to this, you know, maybe it's in the public domain. So maybe you're allowed to use it at this point. Who knows? Well, Jerry, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you have a bunch of houses all over the country and you could really benefit from what we're about to tell everybody. <laughs> hey, you're also a salesperson, apparently. That's awesome. 
Yeah. Snowbird. I don't know if that's a word that's just common for us. I mean, I'm from New York originally, so I know what snowbirds are here in Massachusetts. We have them. Um, other places in the country might not. So talk a little bit about what, what is a snowbird? So a snowbird is essentially someone who has their, their primary residence, uh, typically somewhere in the, in the northern part of the U.S. or Canada. Canada has a lot of snowbirds, too and spends the colder winter months in somewhere more, uh, somewhere warmer. So the typical uh, snowbird that we think about is Florida. Florida was really the first state that first snowbirds. One of the first snowbirds actually was uh, Rockefeller was one of the first snowbirds just because he was the first person that had enough money <laughs> to be able to travel between the states uh, in the, in the summer. So it's a newer concept of once we had the ability to travel between between states uh, for for the winter months, uh, people started to want to want to head south uh, generally in in retirement uh, and not not suffer through these New York or New England winters. And typically, the question is, well, why do people come back? Right? Uh, why don't you just live in Florida? Live in in North Carolina? Typically, the things that bring people back are friends, family, and, uh, you know, the grandkids, essentially, is what almost every one of my clients tells me. I'm a snowbird because of my grandkids. Otherwise, I would just be in Florida. Right. I have aunts and uncles that are snowbirds. Uh, they bought a place in Florida a number of years ago, and they still have a place in Westchester County, and they go back and forth, just like you're describing. Uh, Rory's parents are quite different. Uh, they, are, they are just, they're not snowbirds. They're just snow. Right. <laughs> right. They're, they're retiring north, actually, um, into New Hampshire. So they appreciate the cold. They're, maybe some of these concepts don't apply as much to them. But, you know, part of it, obviously, is not just about the weather. People, you know, move um, and establish domicile across different states because the rules are different. And some of them are more advantageous to you, depending on what stage of life you're in, what your circumstances are. So, is a basic concept. I know that your rules and taxes are very different state to state. And that can seem to be pretty bewildering when there are 50 choices. Snowbirds tend to domicile themselves in Florida or similar states. Is that right? So I'll answer your question in a really uh, long way, I think. So when I think about estate planning for snowbirds, I think about it in three tiers. So the first tier is essentially anyone that's going to start snowbirding. What do, what do those people need to do? That's really, I'm renting a place in Florida, I'm staying at someone else's place, but I'm gonna spend some time down there, what should I do? And then the second tier I think about is people that actually buy a place in Florida or another one of these snowbird friendly states. What should those people do? The third one is our smallest group and that's our high net worth snowbirds because the high net worth snowbirds are the ones that really care about the domicile because typically domicile is an estate tax consideration. And that that's for our snowbirds that want to be residents of Florida rather than residents of Massachusetts or New York, where two states where we have an, a state level estate tax because Florida does not have a state level estate tax. So that's why we see uh, Naples, Florida, for example, has a, uh, the highest concentration of billionaires in the entire country is in Naples, Florida. And I don't think it's because of the industry in Naples, Florida. You know what I mean? Understood. So, so some of these choices are, it seems like with the, your client base of Snowbird, a lot of these considerations are in decisions are either accidental or incidental to their lifestyle. 
Um, and maybe for a certain subset of them, um, these decisions are very intentional where they go to. Is that right? That is correct. I would say the large majority of snowbirds, it, it's a weather-related decision. And then for our higher net worth snowbirds, it, it can be a financial decision. I had a client recently where his CFO, basically, he's still running his company. He's still active involvement. And his CFO basically realized, you know, we have an S-Corp here, so everything's flowing through tax to you individually. If you didn't have a state-level income tax, you could save a lot of money. So, and you start, and he had started to snowbird already, right? Mm-hmm. So this was a situation of maybe you should intentionally decide to be a Florida resident rather than a New York resident, and you could you could potentially save some taxes. So there was a lot of uh, state planning and business planning around that to how do we you know make that make that transition the the most efficient way possible. As we're talking about kind of the the concept of taxes and things are different among states, um, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, could I just ask the most basic question possible? Is estate planning and who really should be thinking about it? So in the beginning, in the intro, I think that was uh, great because estate planning is funny, right? Because we we do the estate planning, but it really is to benefit our, our kids or our heirs because a good estate plan is going to save your kids time. It's going to save the money and it's going to save them a ton of headaches. So the time, the timing savings is if you die with, everyone has an estate plan. Your estate plan is either something that you've drafted on legal zoom and between us, it's probably really crappy or it's something you had an attorney uh, handle and maybe it's good. Maybe it's, it's great. Maybe it's just okay or you have no estate plan and your estate plan is essentially whatever the laws of intestacy are in your state and your state will determine what happens to your assets. So the problem is if you have nothing, your plan is for everyone to have to figure out who your heirs are, for your kids to have to step up, who's going to be the executor, who's going to manage this. And when, when we get into the snowbird planning, if you own property in Massachusetts and Florida, your your heirs are doing that process in Massachusetts for that for the property up there, and they're doing it again in Florida for the property down in Florida. So when we when we talk about estate planning, it's how do we make things very efficient for my kids based on how I've set up my life so that when I pass away, they can things can move smoothly, efficiently to that next generation whoever I want that to be. I love that. And when should somebody start thinking about estate planning? Should somebody be doing it when they're younger in their working years, when they retire? Should they wait until the very last minute um, to draft the estate plan? When should somebody start thinking about this? I think that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, we, we, we can, there's estate planning. You can, start thinking about estate planning when you turn 18 years old, essentially, because you're, once you're 18, you're emancipated and your parents, uh, you know, no longer, you know, run your, run your life. So to, to back up a step, estate planning, uh, to continue on the estate planning discussion, estate planning isn't just what happens when you pass away. There also could be a period of time where you're incapacitated and you need someone to make a medical uh, or financial decision for you. 
So that would be via a healthcare proxy, determining someone to make a medical decision for you, or a power of attorney, someone to make a financial decision for you. So technically, estate planning could start when you become 18, when you turn 18 and you're going away to college or whatever you're doing, and you need someone to make a medical decision or a financial decision, maybe that's your parents. Maybe you want those documents for your parents. Then I, then I like to think about it as, um, you know, events in my life. When I start accumulating assets, wh wh where do I want those assets to go when I pass away? And then I think the big level when people really start to think about it is when they have kids. Because now you feel like you're responsible for someone else. What happens if me and my spouse both die? Who's going to take care of the, the kids? So whenever you get into the estate planning process at that point, it's, uh, you know, the estate plan that I do for someone at 18, that's a pair of attorney to their parents. That's a healthcare proxy to their parents. If someone comes in at 30, they just had a baby, that's a guardian for their, for their kids and maybe setting up a trust for their kid, but that kid is a baby. At that point, where that's not going to be your final estate plan, right? We're, so at that point, it's like getting your oil changed. We'd say every 3,000 miles, not everyone does it. But you want to, so we typically tell people every five years, let's, let's look at this. But another way to look at it is life events. So you, you have a baby, maybe that's the time to come in and make sure this plan still makes sense. You get married, divorced, remarried. Maybe that's a time to come in and make sure this still makes sense. Retirement, that's a time to come in and make sure does this still make sense. And then grandkids is another time, does this still make sense? So without going too much into you know, specific numbers and everything, I have two questions as the non-attorney on this. I'm the layperson, I guess. Number one, uh, the types of people that come in, you just described people at all different stages of their lives. But like, if you can kind of pick like the, the 75 or 80 percent of the majority of the people who are they like who is your not ideal customer but who is the type of customer that you typically hear from most frequently not the outlier not the 80 year old that's on the you know that's you know hasn't gotten to this yet or the ambitious precocious 14 year old so i ask what one question at a time so that's my first question so the, i would say you hit the nail on the head with the outliers the outliers are the people that are 90 years old and they've done nothing to this point and, uh, and the people that are, and I, I've had a couple of those last year, and then the people who are like 25 years old and they want to do it, you know, I've had a couple of those. But the majority of people are probably, you know, 45 to, to 60. Um, typically, kids are, are teenagers at this point. And, and you see a lot of people in, in retirement, they start to, typically they come in with a plan from the, the mid to early 80s. And it talks about kids that are now in their 30s and 40s. And, uh, you know, those are the people that are really updating right now. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast and that fits you, if you are that person and you haven't done this yet, it's probably a good idea for you to contact an estate planning attorney. Perhaps Daniel's a good one if you're in the states in which he practices. And if not, go find somebody in your state. The second question I have, and again, don't go into dollars and cents too much in this, but like as somebody that doesn't fully always understand how attorneys are paid, how, how do you work out a fee schedule for your clients? Like if someone were to contact you for the first time saying, I need an estate plan. Here's who I am. I'm a 43 year old. I have a couple of kids. You know, here's my assets. 
Um, is it hourly? Is it a flat rate? How do attorneys normally address that? I think most attorneys on the, I'll just call, you know, without knowing you guys too much, I'll just call us, you know, the regular, you know, people. We can probably <laughs> sort out our assets pretty quickly. An attorney's going to be able to give you a flat fee for that, or at least give you, I, I don't necessarily get, give them an exact flat fee, but I can give you a range of where it could end up. And that's to be fair to you, right? Because you could be the client that calls me a hundred times, or you could be the client that calls me one time. The first draft is perfect. Uh, so we can probably give you a, a very good, accurate range of where things should end up. And then for the higher net worth individuals, it's typically on an hourly basis because there's just a lot more moving parts with, with that. Again, we can give a, we can give a range. I think every firm can probably give you a range of where it's going to come in, but there's just a lot more moving parts with that. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Also, you know, I mean, people probably have questions saying, "Boy, is this based on a percentage of my assets? Is it based on an hourly rate? Is it based on a flat fee per document?" Um, but you know, regardless, it's you know, I guess I would say it's probably not you know, super cheap legal zoom, but it's not going to break the bank and it's worth doing. Like if you're going to have an estate plan. So again, if people are on the fence because of cost, you know, it's probably worth a discussion with uh, an estate planning attorney and you'd probably really you know, willing to take a, you know, a it seems, with somebody, right? It seems odd, but it's definitely cheaper to do estate planning than it is to do estate administration. So some people just say, listen, I'm dead. I don't care. But, and that's where I think when you brought up earlier in the intro, talk to your parents, because at the end of the day, this is your, it's the kids that are going to benefit from this. So sometimes I do have it where the kids are driving the bus kind of saying, you know, mom and I really need to do this. Can you just meet with them and talk to them? And then when, you, when I talk to them, explain to them, you know, you're going to save your kids money. If you, if you really like these kids, you're going to, aside from the money, you're going to save them a ton of headaches. Because if we can do a good estate plan, we can we can make things very easy for them, uh, at least legal wise. I always say I can make the legal stuff easy, the emotional stuff. I that's on you when when someone passes away. But I can at least make the legal stuff easy when someone passes away. I mean, I would actually give you a little bit more credit than that. Uh, having a good estate plan can actually avoid some, maybe not all, uh, family arguments later on if the intentions are laid out pretty clearly. So. Oh no, I agree with that a hundred, hundred percent. You can definitely, we, we, you can cut out a, as much conflict as possible. I meant the emotional of uh, your sad mom and dad passed away. You know, I said I can't, I can't help them with the. Mm -hmm. They're sad that you passed away, but I can help them with the. They're, they're not going to be angry with you at least of you passed away and you left them with a big headache of having to administer um, your, your mess of an estate. I would ask go into a couple more specific questions just to kind of illustrate to people listening what what are some of the choices that you'd be making um, and sitting down to do your estate plan, but also for my own curiosity because I do see some tensions in uh, estate planning. For example, you know how should somebody title their assets, their real estate assets, their non real estate assets? Um, should they try to keep it in their name? Um, for example. If you hold something in your name, um, then you may get a stepped-up basis for the asset for the, the real estate asset when you die, which would avoid capital gains uh, tax for your for your heirs. Or should you try to um, get things out of your name so that they're into a trust and there are, are less probate and estate tax implications? Um, perhaps it's a little complicated if you're you're just listening and you're not familiar, but you know. 
that's a real choice to make for a lot of people is should you keep the asset in your name or should you put it into a trust or something like that? Um, could you comment on that? And how do people work through um, who should own their assets? That is an excellent question. And that is the exact crux of the estate planning for snowbirds is so we can have, when I'm estate planning for snowbirds, I kind of want to get the best of both worlds, right? So a trust is a great way of avoiding probate because if your asset is in a trust, then that asset passes via the terms of the trust. It does not pass through the probate process. And to take a step back, some of the listeners might be saying, what is probate, right? So probate is the process where you where your nominated executor has to go to the surrogate's court or the probate court in your county and present your will for probate and that the surrogate will, will appoint them as executor and then their job as executor is to marshal your probate assets. For the large majority of us, our only probate asset is going to be our house or our, our real estate because anything that has a beneficiary designation is not a probate asset and is not going to pass via the terms of your will. So IRAs, 401ks, will always pass to life insurance, always passes to who you designated it goes to. It doesn't matter what your will says. Uh, it goes to those beneficiaries. So for a lot of us, the non-probate assets are our house. And your house does not have a beneficiary on it because it's, it's usually your two spouses or it's just you or the surrounding spouse owns, owns the house, no, no beneficiary. So when you take that house, rather than having it in your individual name, you have it in the name of a trust, the trust controls the disposition of that property. So rather than having to go to the surrogate's court or the probate court, um, the trustee can, can essentially sell that property the next day. As soon as they assume the role as trustee after your passing, they can sell the property, they can transfer it to themselves, they can manage your estate much quicker much more efficiently. And so then the key is we want the best of both worlds, right? We want to avoid probate, avoid all those expenses. But you hit on a very great point about the basis step up. Because a lot of us or a lot of our parents bought their houses in the 70s, 80s, even 90s when the base and they, they paid a lot less for these houses than they're worth right now. And at death, if they die owning that house, they get that basis step up to fair market value on date of death. And that can save us as the heirs a lot of money in capital gains tax. So the, the key distinction is if you have a trust that's a revocable trust, some states call them living trusts, you still will, your heirs still get that basis step up at death because that property is still considered your property for the estate tax purposes. So they, even though the asset is in a trust, your heirs still get the basis step up at death. Um, my disclaimer on that is not all trusts provide that. Uh, some irrevocable trusts that we design for estate tax purposes remove the value of that property from your taxable estate. So your heirs won't have to pay an estate tax on the, for the value of the property, but they would inherit your basis in the property and would not get that basis step up. And I mean, I hope the complexities to people listening kind of illustrate 
how important it is to have the conversation with the professor, uh, professional uh, about your estate plan, because we do have a lot of these decision points and a lot of these nuances that can really um, save your heirs money and also a lot of effort and strife um, processing your estate. First of all, the comment that I have is just listening to this discussion. And you know, even though this is the real estate law podcast, we haven't had too many lawyers on besides Rory. So you know, now I feel double teamed with two people that are talking legal. Boy, I'm going to walk away from this and I need to go update my estate plan. Uh, and it, the, a lot has happened in, in my life. We're pretty open with things, but you know, marriage, uh, child, and you know, other real estate that we have, like, you know, rental properties and whatnot. And I'm, you know, woefully underprepared with what I have prepared to account for all those things. So that's a takeaway that I have from this. Did you have a takeaway, Rory, that you've gathered your thoughts and now you want to... I have. There was just an additional point I wanted to make. The complexities, I think, don't just apply to necessarily high net worth individuals who have a lot of monetary value to protect as part of the estate, but also to lower net worth individuals who are planning for nursing home care. And you know, we call it here in Massachusetts, Mass Health, but different Medicaid programs for, for the elderly in nursing homes. And there's a lot of planning that goes involved is involved there to make sure that the family home isn't seized um, at, to, to pay for the health care um, after, uh, after your death. So if you think a lot of these complexities apply just to high net worth individuals, that's really not the case. And sometimes people who are uh, qualifying for state aid in different capacities have more of an incentive to do this and to do it early so that they don't, um, because those sorts of decisions made at the very last minute won't protect you. 100%. That's a, that's a great point. So it's essentially anyone that owns uh, property, if you own your house, you definitely need to consider some sort of estate planning around that house. So there's a very small percentage of people that actually are subject to the federal estate tax because our exemption right now for federal is $12,060,000 per person. So that's $24,120,000 for married couples. Most of us aren't going to get there. You guys will get there if you're not there already, but maybe I'll get there. We don't know, but... We're uh, not there already for the record. <laughs> <laughs> so for most of us, you know, it, it's not really a big issue, even though they sometimes make a big issue out of it. For a lot of us, it's not a big issue. And the, the bigger issue is actually the long-term care. Unfortunately, I'm not going to get political. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other, but this is just the way that we care for the elderly in this country is typically through artificially impoverishing yourself or actually impoverishing yourself by paying for the care and qualifying for some sort of state aid, whether that be Medicaid or some other state aid. And typically these state aid programs will uh, have exempt assets. So your house is an exempt asset. So people think, well, it's fine. I'm, I qualify even though I still own this house. The problem with that is when you pass away, the state can then can and will put a lien against your house so that they can recover what they paid for for your care. So Florida has a homestead exemption. So in Florida, people get to keep their house, but not every state has that. So New York definitely doesn't have it. And uh, the way we plan for that is you put your house into an irrevocable, we call it here an irrevocable Medicaid type trust. And then we have a look back period. Every state has a look back period. The minimum is five years. And you essentially have to do this planning five years before you're going to go into a nursing home. 
to protect that house. And the key with these properly drafted Medicaid trusts is that even though they're irrevocable, it still counts as an asset in your estate when you pass away. So you still get the basis step up, even though the, it's in, the house is in a trust, even though the trust is irrevocable, you still get the basis step up. And one other thing I want to say just about all of the trusts is I don't want people to feel like, well, I worked my whole life. I, I got this great house. Now I'm kind of just giving it to my kids before I pass away. And what, what if they kick me out? Or what if they uh, want to sell the house and they tell me, you can't handle a house this big anymore. We're selling it and we're buying you a condo. That's not going to happen. And I tell my clients all the time, I will gleefully sue your kids if they try to do that. We're going to get them removed. We'll disinherit them. I don't want people to feel like they're losing control over their assets by doing this stuff. In a revocable trust or living trust, you're going to be, they're going to be the trustee. So they're going to make all the decisions. In an irrevocable trust, we're going to, for the Medicaid type trust, we're going to give them a power of appointment over the trust assets. So, and we're going to give them a removal power over the trustee. So if Junior says, we're kicking you out, we're selling this house, we're going to remove Junior and we're going to put someone in that's going to do what you want them to do. You know, there's, there's a lot of pride and trust involved. And, you know, my, my focus group is just my family and my parents and who happen to live in the same house I grew up in. And we were just there recently. It's the only house I know. Um, but, you know, they're still in it. And I think that there's a lot of pride in the fact that they've kept, kept this house for so long. They paid up the house off. Uh, they were the only owners of this house. They purchased it new back in the early 70s. And and here they are. And, you know, they have healthcare needs now, but, you know, it's just easier in their mind to live there. And they trust me. I mean, I'm an only. So, like, I am the one that's going to take care of all these things afterward. And I'm not going to buy the house and kick them out if they don't want to. You know, we've gently encouraged them to give some thought to, you know, you know alternative, uh, easier living situations. But it's going to be their decision for a variety of reasons. Well, for obvious reasons, but you know, they're staying where they're staying, you know, because of a support network and familiarity and that kind of thing. And I'm sure that happens a lot, especially in the New York area. I mean, you know, I couldn't imagine a, this is such a perfect storm. I mean, it, it's not by accident that you're doing the work that you're doing. The New York population is huge. There's a lot of people that are aging. A lot of them are moving to uh, retirement age, and a lot of them are, are physically moving to places like Florida. So, you know, it seems like a really built-in um, audience of customers that you have for many, 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 many years to come. Let's hope. Yeah. Why don't we move toward our final wrap-up, and then you can yeah. talk about... All right. I do have one thing that I'd be, I'd be remiss to walk away from this podcast without bringing up. Um, you've done, you know, an excellent job branding yourself as Snowbird Lawyer and building a lot of genuine expertise marketing, um, particularly for New York, Florida snowbirds. What advice do you have for you know, other attorneys, real estate agents, or other professionals that are looking to find their, their niche and develop a, an expertise um, that's really focused on a particular client base? And then how do you market to that client base? So the first thing I'd say is don't pick snowbirds. I think that corner is uh, taken. I think it's, uh, you know, I've put a lot of effort into when I was first starting my career as to, you know, what practice area was I going to go into? And then when I got into that practice area, I got some good advice, which was, you know, get into a niche area. And I didn't really listen right away, but sometimes you got to hear something two, three times. And I, I did a lot of uh, reading about business generation, business development. And it, although it seems counterintuitive, right? 
I want, I, I don't have any business right now. I want to focus on everybody. I want to be the one-stop shop. Why would I, fo- why would I laser focus on this one group and exclude everybody else? It just seems counterintuitive. But I, I went for that thing. And the truth of the matter is when you, when you get into a niche, you become the go-to for that, that niche of people. Because you can say things like, I literally wrote the book on estate planning for snowbirds, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, other people are not going to exclude themselves. No one's going to say, Dan only deals with snowbirds. What does he know about regular estate planning? Because the bottom line is, there's the the base level people are always going to come to you because you they know you have that base level of knowledge it's just that niche people are definitely going to know you're you're the go-to guy for lack of a better term or go-to expert all right thanks jason sorry i i definitely wanted to to point that out and bring up that topic and if i could just say the one thing about the specifically state planning for snowbirds we talked about the trust but the trusts are extremely important for the snowbirds because if you have your if you own your house in your individual name in florida and new york massachusetts wherever it is your heirs have to do a probate in new york and a probate in florida if you get at least one of those houses preferably both of them into into a trust we can avoid probate at least in florida or hopefully entirely and that's just going to save your heirs a lot of time money and headaches Excellent advice from attorney Daniel Bernard. Uh, We're going to move into our quick final three questions, uh, which we ask of all of our guests who appear on the podcast, uh, just as a way to uh, tie up the conversation and and lighten it up a little bit. So the first question is, if you were to be able to get on stage and talk for 30 minutes about any topic with no preparation, it can't be estate planning for snowbirds, (laughs) what would it be? It's got to be something uh, NFL football. Uh, it drove, drove my parents crazy, but like every report I had to do, middle school, high school, I somehow wrote something about NFL football. My parents would be like, they said to write an essay about Emily Dickinson, and you somehow turned it into <laughs> out this, this essay about the New York Times. This makes no sense. Like, you're a maniac. And then when I was in college, I, had a, I was an economics major. We had to do a final project, final paper, whatever. And I wrote my paper about, do NFL players play harder in the final year of a contract? So my parents said, you're 22 years old. Like, well, you're still doing this? And then when I was in law school, I was in a gaming law course, and we had to write a paper about some kind of gambling thing. So I wrote about, um, you know, does the, what, what the NFL stance on gambling, a calculated contradiction because they actually benefit a lot from people being very interested in gambling on the games. It drives up the popularity, and even though their public stance was we're against it, we're against it. So I wrote that paper, and then my parents said, you're in law school. You're still writing about football. Go move on with your life. So I think I could talk about football all day long, and uh, that's, my, that's my thing. I can reserve that for another conversation because you know, I could probably talk about a lot of football. Rory could attest to the fact that I watch – almost every you know televised game and i do make my little bets and i do poorly at that. and you can go to new york now and do that too you don't just have to drive to new hampshire Lovely to do it so yeah. lucky lucky for me the paper i wrote i submitted it to the unlv gaming law journal and they published it so i have this nice thing hanging on my wall in my office but now that we have FanDuel in new york i feel like i got to take it down yeah well, no we don't have FanDuel. we have everything we got draft we got kings, draft we, kings. Got, yeah. we, got, we got we got just sports gambling now 
For the record, my answer for this question is professional wrestling. Everyone knows it will be professional wrestling. And I also wrote a paper about professional wrestling at college and it got me an A in the course. So, you know, I think there's a precedent for this. My follow-up, Giants or Jets? Either way, it's... I feel bad. Either way, you guys don't like me. I know. (laughs) Well, I grew up a Giants fan, so it's been been painful to watch the past few years. But But the Giants have been painful for the last 10. The Jets have been painful for our lifetimes. Oh, yeah, (laughs) since Joe Namath. All right, question number two. Tell us something that happened early on in your life that impacts the way that you work today. It's kind of strange, but I I graduated from from college in 2008. So if you remember back in 2008, you know, I couldn't get a job as dog catcher, essentially, in, mm-hmm. in 2008. So that's what put me on the path of going to law school. And I think it was just the really the best thing that could have happened to me was the entire world collapsing, because it really focused me when I was in law school on I need to be on in I need to intern every semester. When I was in college, I just thought, oh, you know, hmm. typical millennials, right? We're like, I'm just going to get this degree. Someone's going to give me a great job. That's what my parents have been telling me since kindergarten. I'm gonna, it's going it's to be fine. When I was in, when the world really slapped me in the face, I figured out, no, I gotta, I gotta make something happen. So, I think that really put me on the path of I inter, I had an internship every single semester. I was at the surrogates court, tax court, working in firms. I did the clinic. I did everything that I could do. That's why I wrote papers, tried to get them published. I just always was trying to do things. And I've carried that into my career with, I try to blog, I try to, to write things. I wrote a book. Uh, I, try to, I try to come onto podcasts. I, I try to give uh, seminars, or, uh, local, local seminars. So I, I think that's really just pushed me to just be uh, more aggressive and, get more into things. Yeah. Oh, 08, 09, tough time. I mean, I, I had, I was in between jobs a couple of times and Rory had the misfortune of being in law school and then graduated into a recession. So yeah, you can sympathize, but I mean, it's a perfect, what you've done is a perfect example of like, you know, kind of rising out of that economy with, you know, some, some grit and focusing on a specific niche and, and really going all in on it. And, you know, here it is, you know, over 10 years later and look at the success. You've written the book on it. Absolutely. Um, and, and finally, what are you watching or reading or listening to these days? Towards the end of the year, what I typically like to do is I get into the, the Tony Robbins stuff again, uh, kind of to start the year off right. So pretty mm-hmm. much like right after Thanksgiving, I listen to the Personal Power uh, 30-day program, kind of try to get my mindset on that. And then I do some Jim Rohn, Rohn stuff. So I don't know. Like Some people think it's hokey. I like the personal development stuff. So it's been a lot of uh, Jim Rohn and uh, Tony Robbins, and uh, I, I do like podcasts a lot. Yeah, I mean, and, they wouldn't be successful if they didn't have people listening, and I think it's always a good <laughs> idea to reset, especially toward the end of the year, you know, coming into a new, a new year like we are right now. And then I know you guys can sympathize with this. Uh, I have two kids, so it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of Disney Plus. Oh yeah, I've seen every episode of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. There's actually a, a local reporter here who's on Instagram, and she was singing the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse intro song. And I actually messaged her and said, "You know, you're singing the words wrong. It's actually yeah. this. And it's come like, inside. Oh. It's fun inside, right?" Yeah, yeah, come inside, it's fun inside, and yeah. something about beans, and I said, no, nah, you got the lyrics wrong, this is what it is. 
And you know what's great about Disney Plus? Not to go on, not to do a sales pitch for Disney Plus, but it's all the stuff that I had when I was a kid. Yeah. Like I get to introduce to my to my daughter, and my son's eight months old, so he doesn't really understand what's on the TV. But. Yeah. yeah. We love the musicals. We love, you know, she watches, it was a lot of Moana, Frozen, uh, Encanto that just came out, Coco. We watch Coco all the time, but you hit the nail on the head. There is some drug in the Mickey Mouse clubhouse that she just cannot get off right now. So yeah. we're eager to see how this evolves away into the next uh, obsession. Mm-hmm. Yep. Daniel, tell us really uh, quickly where we could find you and how we can get this amazing book. So if you go to my, so I, my, my firm has a website, uh, SuffolkLaw.com. That's uh, Tumi Latham's website. And then I've set up uh, a website pretty much for the, for the snowbirds called uh, StayPlanningForSnowbirds.com. That's where they can get the, uh, download a free copy of the, of the book. And uh, I'm always happy if any of your listeners have any questions, you know, send me an email, uh, D. Bernard at SuffolkLaw.com. And uh, I'm always, always happy to answer anyone's questions and talk about uh, why the Giants are terrible mm-hmm. or uh, stay plenty for snowbirds. We will put all that in the show notes. Uh, and I hope the Giants turn it around. I mean, man. But we'll have to circle back after this year and, and see how your, your business is doing and how the Giants are doing with a new head coach. Let's that hope they both go through. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope they both do well. So thank you so much for spending some time here. Thank you, uh, Daniel. Uh, and you know, we wish you the best uh, for a successful year this year. And we encourage you, if you're listening, to go check out his website and book. Put that in the show notes. But it is estate planning for snowbirds. So on behalf of Rory and myself, thank you so much for listening to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, if you could like this uh, and subscribe to the podcast and give us some comments, we really appreciate that as well. Uh, And that's it. So thank you so much for joining us in this episode and we will talk to you next time. Bye. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.